Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 94, Questions and Answers. Well, here we are, two years of the History of the Germans podcast, 93 main episodes and 102, if we count the bonus episodes, interviews and the like. That makes 3,223 minutes, or two days, 5 hours and 43 minutes of recorded history. At the last count, you have downloaded 914,413 episodes, which means if you had all listened to all of the episodes, which obviously you haven't, you would have spent a cumulative 20,000 days listening to me. Wow. So it's only fair that I listen to you for once. And that is what this episode is all about. So thank you all for your comments and questions. It was great to see how much you care about the story we've gone through. And I really enjoyed reading them, and I think I'll attempt to answer all of them, except for one which literally came in five minutes before I started recording. I did organize them by topic, going from general to specific, so the podcast in general, the sources, German history in general, the Hohenstaufen, and then Frederick II and his sons. So, let's start with questions on the podcast. Justin Lee asks, could you explain your choice of opening theme, please? Excellent. Let's start with what every episode starts with, the flute sonata in E-flat major, H545 by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, or some claim it was BWV1031, Johann Sebastian Bach. But what we do know is it's performed and arranged by Michel Rondeau. It actually took me a long time to find this theme. I had the first four episodes written down and all ready to go before I knew which music I would use. I wanted it to be German, though not overly familiar to people. And I excluded the 19th century just because I did not want a sort of nationalistic vibe that always comes with Richard Wagner. German pop music was out for all the good reasons, or actually just one, taste. That meant 18th century or earlier. And that is when I came across Michel Rondeau's arrangement for this piece by Bach. Michel Rondeau is a Canadian educator, composer, arranger and trumpeter. At least that's what I've read on the internet. He has most generously licensed this piece of music for free to anyone who wants to use it, which was a bit of a consideration at the beginning. I tried to get in touch with him to thank him for this lovely piece of music and his generosity, but I had no luck so far. So if anyone has a way to contact him, please convey my best wishes and my gratitude to him. It is a brilliant arrangement and makes me smile every time I listen to it. Ole Schütze asks... You already mentioned that the next season will be focused on the history of the Hanse, but I was wondering how much you're planning to swerve off to other topics, like the early modern period has so many fascinating developments slash inventions of great impact, like the printing press or the development of modern banking, that it would seem like a shame not to talk about them. Thanks for this really important question. Let me just clarify something. The next season is not just about the Hanseatic League and the Teutonic Knights. Let me share my thoughts on how I got there. As I was working my way through Frederick II, I realized that my narrative had continuously slipped south. Important events in the north, like the Vendish Crusade or the fall of Henry the Lion, did get covered, but as soon as those were dealt with, the narrative went straight back to Milan, Cremona, Rome or Sicily. It made me wonder why that was. And the answer is that, at the latest by the time Otto von Nordheim heads up the fight against Henry IV, the lands north of the Main River embarked on their own historical path. Interactions with the emperors became increasingly sparse. The Hohenstaufen rarely ventured beyond Goslar. So I decided to tell the story of the north, starting from the very beginning, so 
that is the invasion by Charlemagne in 772, and trace the creation of the Margraviate of Brandenburg, the rise of the House of Etienne, and ultimately the expansion east by trade and by force. Now I initially thought to call the whole thing the Teutonic Knights and the Hanseatic League, and I even told you guys that that's what it will be. I chose the name mainly for marketing reasons. But as I prepared the first episodes, I realized I could not simply kick off with the Bull of Rimini and the arrival of the Teutonic Knights in Prussia. There are too many gaps here we have not covered or have covered so long ago, even I barely remember them. So we need to do a recap and delve a lot deeper in developments in Saxony between at least Otto von Nordheim and the foundation of Lübeck. That may be its own season before we have two other seasons, one on the Teutonic Knights and one on the Hanseatic League. So the plan of these seasons is to take us maybe to 1410, Battle of Tannenberg, and then we'll circle back south and trace the emperors from 1250 to the Luxembourgers and finally the early Habsburgs. So Ole, no worries, I will definitely not miss out on the printing press and the creation of modern banking. Ken de Jong asks, is it possible you could do some summary episodes and compare the Holy Roman Empire slash Germany with the other kingdoms in Europe at the time? Differences in economies, political structure, military might, etc. Thanks a lot, Ken. That may well be on the cards once the Holy Roman Empire is settled after the Golden Bull of 1356. I have on occasion drawn comparison as we went along, and because the things are in flux, it's really not quite been the point to make a whole episode on that comparison, but I will definitely do one, and I think it's a great idea. Now, a few questions on sources. So Douglas Moran asks, why are there no great biographies of Otto I, the Great? Like there are numerous bios of Frederick I and II in English, there are numerous volumes in German. Really, really good question. I do not know, but I think there might be one in the offing, so stay tuned. It's not by me, though. Otherwise, earlier medieval German history is usually embedded into broader stories, so for instance, Chris Wickham's Medieval Europe, Peter Wilson's Holy Roman Empire, and Tom Holland's Millennium. But on the positive side, as long as the biographies of Catherine Parr outnumber books on medieval German emperors by the factor of 5 to 1, there's a lot of potential listeners out there looking for the stories they haven't heard a thousand times. Now to German history in general. Matt Uhl asks, How did Frederick II, Barbarossa and the Hohenstaufen legacy help alter and set the table for Germany's contribution to the age of exploration in the late 1400s, as well as the looming European Renaissance? Could you point to the papal-slash-imperial conflict as a precursor to the works of Martin Luther and the schism that Henry VIII of England ushered in centuries later? Thanks, Matt. I said ask any questions, but, you know, that's quite a broad one. So let's start with the first and the most important point. History is not linear. Something Frederick II did not automatically lead to the Renaissance or the Reformation. A lot of other things needed to happen simultaneously to bring about this end result. And that is why the motto of this podcast is Gregory of Tours saying, a great many things keep happening, some good, some bad. So, that being said, a number of links I think I can highlight. So, if you look at the Renaissance that emerged from the city-states of Italy, there is actually more of a what-if argument relating to Barbarossa and Frederick II. So, let's assume the Hohenstaufen had succeeded in subjugating northern Italy and turning it into a centralized autocratic state as they had done in Sicily. Now, we do know that the Renaissance never really took hold in the Kingdom of Naples and in Sicily, 
and some observers, Stephen Runciman amongst them, argue it was because of the autocratic regime established by the Normans and Frederick II. So, in a way, the failure of imperial policy was a precondition for the Renaissance. Now, on the flip side, one could argue that Frederick II was more of a Renaissance man than a medieval one. He combined intense curiosity across art, literature and science with ruthless political ambition that will be so typical of the Renaissance princes like Francesco Sforza or Lorenzo Medici or Giulio della Rovere. But I really doubt you can say that without Frederick II's example, these guys would have never emerged. As for the Reformation, I believe there is a much more imminent link. As I pointed out in episode 92, the papal epilogue, that the long war between the popes and the empress has led to a politicization of the church that led them to lose the lead on spiritual matters. So when it came together with French expansionism and the popes ended up in Avignon embarking on another century of eroding moral authority. By the time they got back to Rome, the whole structure was so corrupt, one of those regularly occurring descents had to get through at some point. Can I find a link to the Age of Exploration? I mean, not specifically for the landlocked Hohenstaufen, but there's something that happened during their period, the Crusades, which indeed played a role. Because the Crusades gave the Europeans this idea that they could conquer faraway and much superior civilizations thanks to their relentless focus on military prowess. That kind of confidence may have played a role when the Portuguese set off for the Cape of Good Hope in India. And if I remember correctly, Peter Frankopan and William Dalrymple and Neil Ferguson and others have looked at this question of why was Europe able to conquer the world and enlightened on the Crusades as an important part of the narrative. Lee Leon 7 asks, Who do you think was the best German king so far? And what be your criteria by which you are deciding? That is a simple one. I'm a Democrat and I think monarchies are a poor way of organizing a political entity. So, there is never a good king. Now, if you ask me who amongst the individuals we talked about these last two years I am most impressed by, it would have to be Henry the Fowler. He got most things right. When he went to war, he did it with the idea of future reconciliation. He planned for the long term and he created lasting institutions. And that would probably give you the criteria I care about when it comes to political leaders. Long-term thinking and the ability to find sustainable compromises. And I also do not really like these ranking things that some people do. I also do not like these ranking things that some people do. History isn't a closed system, where some people win and therefore others have to lose. Mostly what happens then and now is that either everyone wins or everyone loses. And we have a few more interesting questions about the Middle Ages. So Andrew Moore asks, what was the source of the continued resistance by anti-imperial popes? Due to the lack of blood relations between popes or cardinals, was it simple self-interest slash pursuit of lands and wealth or some wider force like class, given the tendency of cardinals to come from the noble families, or regional loyalty? Now, I think effectively what pope and emperor could not agree on was who was boss, who was the leader of all of Christendom. I think it's literally as simple as that. The world was simply not big enough to contain two masters. And that conflict was weirdly lopsided. The emperors had all the military strength and in the initial parts of the conflict were really willing to use it. So they would bring their army down to Rome, apprehend the Pope and force him to concede. 
The popes, on the other hand, had very few soldiers themselves, but had the spiritual power that became ever more significant as the people became more and more pious. And they allied with the domestic opponents of the emperors, such as the imperial princes in the case of Henry IV and the Italian communes in the case of the Hohenstaufen. Did class play a role? I'm not convinced. The popes of the high middle ages came from a similar background as their imperial opponents. The fact that they had a different education, i.e. they were trained for the priesthood, had learned Latin, etc., whilst their brothers would learn to fight and hunt, had not produced much of a rift. Usually the ecclesiastical brothers were loyal to their families, sponsored their nephews into positions of power and shifted the church wealth over to them. Is there a regional issue? That could have contributed to, say, Innocent IV's dislike of Frederick II, as he was from Genoa, and Frederick's army was constantly harming Genoa's maritime trade. But I would not rank this too highly. National sentiment was still in its infancy and secondary to the question of the role of the church or the honour of the empire. Simple greed, always an issue, though I would argue it was again secondary. In the high Middle Ages it was more the idea that the popes felt it was their duty to protect the property of the church, which includes all the ludicrous claims derived from the fake Constantine donation. Greed and corruption really set in properly in the late 13th and 14th century. Bottom line? It's the Highlander problem. There can only be one. Simon Moss asks, at a time when France, England and other European kingdoms were starting to centralise, what structural reasons do you think made the Holy Roman Empire fragment? Now, if you go through the structural components in 919, there is little that distinguishes West Francia and East Francia. Economically, they are both agricultural and on the cusp of the economic boom of the Middle Ages. France might be slightly disadvantaged, thanks to its higher proportion of large estates run with slaves, while Saxony in particular may have a higher proportion of small farmstead of free men. Though, evidence for that is disputed. Culturally, again, they are very close, and ancient families like the wealth have property in various parts of the old empire. There used to be a theory that it was geography that hampered Germany's development into a coherent and centralised nation. The story goes that England is an island, and France is surrounded by the sea in the Pyrenees, so these places are easier to consolidate. Now I'm sure that mattered, geography is always important, but only once the French kings had actually managed to get to the Pyrenees and the Atlantic, which wasn't before the High Middle Ages. In the crucial period of 900 to 1200, other factors were much more significant, I think, two in particular. My absolute favourite, tax, and the other great driver of history, potluck. At the risk of repeating myself. If you have a tax-raising state, the ruler, the monarch or otherwise, can gather the resources in his capital and then allocate out based on loyalty. That is how capitals are established and a political entity coalesces into one. As long as the handouts from the monarch are economically worth more to the local potentates than the alternative, such as semi-autonomy in the provinces, the state holds together. That is why Byzantium lasted a thousand years after the fall of the West, and why England held together ever since Alfred the Great. In France, the kings started with the small territory, built their institutions and established tax-raising powers in their small territories. Only once this was in place, they made what we bankers call bolt-on acquisitions. Adding a piece of territory at a time, introduce the royal institutions, including taxation, and then move on to the next target until they had rolled up the entire country. 
In the Empire, the starting point was the inverse. Otto the Great is in charge of a very large territory with loose institutions and no tax-raising powers. What makes it worse is there is no longer any foreign threat that would justify introducing taxes, as was the case in England during the Viking invasions. If you look at it this way, the battle on the Lechfield 955, when the threat from the Magyars was repelled, was also the beginning of the weakness of the empire. In all that time, France and England were caught in a permanent struggle. No wonder the French and English established viable taxation systems and a state military infrastructure. And then we have the whole issue of potluck. These are monarchies, and reproductive capacity of the holder of the title is a crucial historical fact. And I'm afraid the imperial loins have let Germany down quite badly. We had disrupted successions after Otto III, Henry II and Henry V, and minorities after Otto II and Henry III. So in these 150 years between 983 and 1125, we had only one smooth transition of power from father to grown-up son. Meanwhile in France, the kings produced sons by the busload and lived long enough for a smooth transition. That is one of the key reasons that France abandoned royal elections, whilst the empire became an elective monarchy with all the difficulties that entails. And then we have the luck and war. I think the loss of the army before Rome in 1167 was a very crucial moment. It was the last time the empire as an institution went on an expansionist war in Italy. After the collapse, Barbarossa and his heirs pursue their objectives in Italy with paid soldiers. And they have to, since Barbarossa had to give up on the policy of keeping the empire together through force of personality and handout of feudal rights. Instead, he consolidates and expands his territory, which brings it into competition with the other imperial princes. Basically, he copies the policies the French kings apply, creating institutions in their own lands and then expand. And that could have worked, was it not for another dose of bad luck, namely the death of Henry VI and the subsequent war between Otto IV and Philip of Swabia. Finally, do I think the entanglement in Italy was that great mistake that caused all the problems? I'm not convinced. The English kings spend most of the Middle Ages fighting wars in France, and despite losing it, they coalesced. So again, I think it's other factors that mattered more. Andrei Skubotsov asks, Why was there so little German-Italian cross-cultural influence during the whole period? Many popular Italian names, like Federico, Enrico, Enzio, date from that period. Did anything similar happen in the other direction? Now, I cannot think of a trend in first names going the other direction, so there are no Alzos or Arduins in Germany. It is more that all the German princes also ended up being called Frederick or Henry, same as in Italy. These were just the imperial names rather than the German names. What we did get from the Italians in that period were the banking terms. So the Lombardsatz, which is the German word for the Fed funds rate, goes back to the Lombard bankers. The words bank, banker, bankrupt, casa, conto, credit are all Italian. So is bilanz as the balance of accounts. Interestingly, words relating to food and music we took from Italy are relatively modern. So tiramisu did not come back with Henry IV, however strong the Germans may believe it. Jason Oxley asks, why did the empire never conquer Venice? Was it because there were more than just one city and had control over other towns and cities, or just a lot of money to pay mercenaries, or an army of their own? Well, a couple of reasons. 
First, Venice was technically part of Byzantium and an attack would be regarded as a hostile act by Constantinople. But more importantly, Venice sits on an island, or is actually an artificial island. The empress never had a navy until Frederick II built one in Sicily, and that navy was deployed against Genoa, a place Frederick's admirals knew well, mainly because they were born there. I think there had been one attack under Charlemagne, I've never really quite researched that, but that again failed because he could not get across the lagoon. Simple as that. Water. Moritz Moser. How is the language developing? Would Otto I still understand Barbarossa? How did the Roman popes communicate with the German emperors? Were there translators or did they even speak Latin? Barbarossa had no classical education. He could not read. Did he know Latin? We do not know what Otto I spoke. He might have spoken Old Saxon, which was different to Old High German, as the language has not followed certain shifts in the intonations. Around 1050, another such shift happened, which gets us from Old High German to Middle High German. So to your question, if Otto I spoke only Old Saxon, it's very unlikely he would have understood Barbarossa, who spoke Middle High German. If he spoke Old High German, which is likely, at least as a second language, then he may have understood Barbarossa in the same way modern Germans understand Swiss German, which means barely. As for Pope and Emperor, their written communication was usually in Latin. When they met in person, which was extremely rare, I would assume again they used Latin, though with interpreters, at least for the Emperor. Most Emperors, like for instance Barbarossa, barely spoke or understood Latin, which is why he had to rely on translators. And that same was true for his court. You may remember that whole thing about translation became very virulent during the court day in Besançon in 1157. The Chancellor, Reinald von Dassel, had translated a letter from the Pope, which, in the way that he translated it, suggested the Pope saw the Emperor as his vassal, and not only in respect of certain parts of Italy, but in respect of the whole of the Empire. And that nearly caused a fundamental rift, which then came to pass later. So if you listen to episode 52, you get the whole story. Other emperors, such as Henry II and Frederick II, spoke good Latin. Nevertheless, letter-writing was left to the professionals in the Chancery. So now a couple of questions on the Hohenstaufen in general. No Comment on Twitter asks, Do you think the Staufen ever faced a fork in the road? A moment when, if things had gone differently, a battle lost, a tragedy avoided, etc., the story of the Hohenstaufen would have ended very differently. Obviously, there are always turning points in history. As for the time of the Hohenstaufen, the three biggest ones I can think of is the election of Conrad III, or more precisely, the failed candidacy of Henry the Proud. If Henry the Proud at the time, Duke of Bavaria, Duke of Saxony and Lord of about one-third of Swabia, had become Emperor, the political focus might have been more on consolidating power in Germany rather than tracking down to Italy, and so we might have had a completely different outcome. The other is the collapse of the imperial army before Rome in 1167, which kills off Barbarossa's imperial ambitions for good. It's the one that I've already mentioned. It was not just that so many of the important nobles had died, but it was about the way they died. From dysentery, after burning down parts of old St. Peter and harassing the Pope. That looked too much like punishment from the Lord. And so after that, Barbarossa focuses on territorial consolidation in Germany, rather than unifying the empire. And finally, there's the death of Henry VI in 1197, aged just 32. That triggered the civil war between Philip of Swabia and Otto IV, which seriously eroded royal power to the point 
that Frederick II had to issue his privileges to the bishops and princes, confirming their semi-independence. And as for the survival of the dynasty? Well, maybe if Frederick II had had the guts to slap the Pope in the face, just as Sciarra Colonna had done 60 years later, the Hohenstaufen would have sat on the throne of Sicily for a few centuries to come. So on Frederick II, Tom Brückel asks, why wasn't there more opposition against Frederick II during the later period of his reign in Germany? Why did the princes accept an emperor who was never present, or did they prefer such a situation? If so, why did none of them exploit this power vacuum? Well, the way I think about it is as follows. The princes very much liked an emperor who was never around. And having these young princes, so first Henry and then Conrad, was ideal. They could get their privileges confirmed by them, and otherwise they could do as they pleased. When Henry VII tried to assert his position, the princes rebelled, and Frederick II came up to confirm their position as imperial princes with only minor obligations to the emperor. So it all hangs together. The princes supported Frederick II because he wasn't interfering in what they were doing. There was much better than having a king supported by the papacy or some other ambitious man who would establish some sort of rule over them. So when the Landgraf of Thuringia, one of the wealthiest imperial princes, took up the mantle, he didn't really gather much of a following. The only reason princes would have wanted an effective and efficient ruler would have been if there was any threat of foreign invasion. But that wasn't the case, except for the momentary shock of the Mongol invasion. If that did anything, it was to coalesce the imperial princes behind Frederick II at the time, rather than searching for an alternative in a crisis. Where we have opposition, namely from the archbishops of Mainz and Cologne, the background is purely financial, at least according to Stefan Weinfurter. He argues it had to do with the practices of Lombard bankers in Germany. The lenders would demand from every bishop that they get a dispensation from the Pope allowing them to borrow money. That dispensation was needed because prelates were not allowed to give away church property, not even as payment for a loan. So, without the piece of paper from the Pope, the lender would not be able to force repayment or seize any assets. So, what Innocent IV was, was to refuse to sign the release papers. At which point, the archbishops were immediately cut out of cash. If they wanted to keep going, they had to oppose the emperor. Though, they probably would have otherwise kept supporting him. Andreas Karl Schöpf asks, why didn't Conradine secure the title of King of the Romans and support in Germany before claiming Sicily? Well, at the time Conradine set off for Sicily, there was an elected and a properly crowned King of the Romans, Richard of Cornwall. Now, Conradine could have challenged him for the crown, but that would have opened up a second front against another highly accomplished soldier and diplomat. For a 16-year-old untested nobleman, to take on the two most ambitious men of the 13th century at the same time, that would have been a big ask. Secondly, what would the title bring him? At this point, the royal title and associated income was so depleted, it barely made a difference. And finally, his claim in Sicily would have lost momentum if he had waited, say, 10 years until he had gained control of the empire north of the Alps. The Ghibelline cities and the Sicilian barons were ready to strike now, when the reign of Charles had not yet bedded down. But, as usual, we do not know about what went through his head, so this is just post-rationalization. Christopher Mansour asks, 
How large a disadvantage did Frederick II have in his struggle with the papacy due to the existence of the Latin Empire in Constantinople? Given the many Greek-speaking inhabitants of the Regno, would a fully functioning Byzantine Empire and Orthodox Church have provided Frederick with a religious alternative? Now that is a really interesting question. Now fully functioning would, I guess, mean an empire with tax-raising ability and a standing army. So something last seen before Emperor Manuel got hammered at Mirio Kefalon. Because under the Angelos dynasty, Constantinople was barely able to keep itself together. And even then, the problem for Frederick II remained that most of his subjects were Latins. Had he joined the Orthodox faith, he would have almost certainly been deposed as emperor, which meant losing his claims in Germany and in northern Italy. And we do not know how his Sicilian Catholic subjects would have reacted, in particular given they were already groaning under serious taxation levels. And if you look at what actually happened, the Latin Empire was one of the few trump cards Frederick had at the Council of Lyon. In the 1240s, the Latin Empire was about to collapse, and so Frederick's proposal was to end the conflict, accept him back into the church, and then in return, he would sail out to the Bosporus and prop up the crumbling regime there. And that carried weight, because if you remember, the Council of Lyon did not depose Frederick II. Innocent IV had to do it without them, at least in part because of the opposition related to the Latin Empire. And Andrew Skvotsov again were Frederick's problems more inside his head than actually something he needed to worry about? It seems that Frederick II made the excommunication and the Lombard Wars into an issue which might not have been necessary. The simple answer is, well, it depends. It depends on what you think an emperor can and want to achieve. There is the whole issue of the honour. For Frederick, the Italian communes, and in particular Milan, were rebels. And in his autocratic worldview, rebels needed to be put down. Otherwise, his authority would be tarnished. And that may be what you mean by, it is just in his head. And there is a question of logistics. So if you want to intervene in Germany from Sicily, i.e. bringing soldiers up from the south across the Alps, you need a path through northern Italy. And finally, there are the economic considerations. A city like Cremona or Verona was infinitely, infinitely richer than even Cologne, at the time the richest of the German cities, and also completely out of reach. Northern Italy was just an incredibly attractive bauble. It was hard to resist. And finally, Frederick II didn't know that he would lose, so in hindsight, Henry VII's plan was clearly better. But then, as you see, hindsight is a wonderful thing, it's just not available when you need it. Andrei Skubotsov, how did the struggle between Pope and Emperor affect the average German? In particular, why did Germany not experience the factionalism between Guelphs and Ghibellines we saw in Italy? One reason is that the German princes were, as per the previous answer, generally fine with the imperial policy and saw no reason to side with the papacy. The other is that, at least as far as I can see, the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict was only tangentially related to the papal-imperial conflict. It was more of an extension of the constant infighting between Italian communes and within the communes that predated the arrival of Barbarossa. And that struggle goes back to the social structure inside the Italian communes. Inside the cities we have the aristocratic land-owning upper class, usually Ghibelline, and a merchant and banker class, usually Guelph-leaning. The two sides have very different political and social perspectives, resulting in infighting, 
infighting that then spills over into conflict between the cities. Now, that internal social conflict did not exist in Germany in the same way. The old land-owning aristocratic families rarely moved into the cities. The leading families in the cities were usually ministeriales, so much lower-ranking aristocrats, or merchants, i.e. the gap in the social hierarchy was not as wide, nor the political differences. Was there no moral pushback on the political behaviours of the Pope, especially with Frederick II? Oh, there was. Just only after Conradin had been beheaded, as I described in episode 93. There is so often a gap between facts changing and attitudes moving along. Jason Oxley. You mentioned that Enzo of Sardinia was the last of the Hohenstaufen and died in captivity. But I read somewhere, in Wikipedia, that Manfred of Sicily had three sons and they were also captured. Is that true? Yes. There were the children of Manfred of Hohenstaufen who were very young when his regime fell. They were locked up in Naples where they died after decades in miserable conditions. We know very little about them and allegedly they lived in a state of severe mental illness. But you're right, they outlived Enzo and were therefore the last male Hohenstaufen. My bad, but you'll see how bad I was in a moment. Because Michel Steidler said, I'd love to hear more about Frederick II's bastard children. Do you know anything about them and what became of them? So, more detail. Obviously, we do not know all of the children he fathered, but only those he elevated to some form of status, presumably because either the mother had meant something to him or the boy or the girl interested him. The first of those was someone called Frederick of Paterano, who was conceived in Sicily sometime before Frederick set off for Germany in 1212. His mother is unknown and he was given a castle in the Abruzzo Mountains. The relationship to his father seemed to have been fractious, and we hear that he left Sicily for Castile in 1240, where his trace then disappears. The next child was Catherine, born unclear, but maybe 1214. Her mother, we know, was Adelheid, a Swabian noblewoman who was also Enzo's mother and might have been the girl Frederick grew up with. She married Jacobo of Caretto, Count of Savona. Their family was based in Liguria and seems to still exist. Her full brother Enzo is probably the best known of Frederick's children and has featured in the main podcast, so we can leave him out for here. He might have had descendants and the Bentivoglio of Bologna claim one of their ancestors had been a mistress of the King of Sardinia and they were descended of him. Then we have Frederick of Antioch, born 1226, to presumably a woman from Antioch in the Crusader States, but again, very unclear. He had grown up at his father's court and became imperial vicar in Tuscany, i.e. he was in charge of all imperial military assets in Tuscany. In this context, he managed to throw the Gelds out of Florence and became Podesta of the city in 1247, but then had to relinquish this position in early in 1250 when the Gelds returned. The Tuscany lost Frederick of Antioch moved to Sicily to support his brother Manfred. He died in 1256 and was buried in Palermo Cathedral. His son Conrad kept going and lived all the way to 1312, despite multiple excommunications and the support first of Manfred and then of his cousin Conradin. His descendants lasted into the 14th and 15th century. Next in line, Richard, Count of Chieti. He was the third of the imperial vicars after Enzo and Frederick of Antioch. Richard was responsible for Ancona and Spoleto, where he achieved a victory over papal troops in 1248. 
He died in 1249, potentially in the same battle against Bologna, where Enzio was captured. He too had some offspring that held on to the county of Chieti for a few generations. Then there is Salvazza or Salveggia, which means the wild one. She was born around 1222 to an unknown mother. She married Ezzelino da Romano, the great condottiere in the Veneto. They had no children. Then we have Margaret, again of an unknown mother. She married Thomas of Aquino, a cousin of the great scholastic and an important supporter of Frederick II. Then there are the children he had with Bianca Lancia. Because he married her on her deathbed, these children are considered legitimate, at least to a degree. The oldest, Constance, was married to John III Vatazas, a Byzantine nobleman who had established a territory around Nicaea after the fall of Constantinople in 1204. This empire of Nicaea became the focal point of Byzantine resurgence that ultimately broke the Latin rule over Constantinople. However, Constance had no children with John III, so there is no Hohenstaufen blood on the imperial throne of Constantinople. The second child with Bianca Lancia was Manfred, born 1232 and king of Sicily, from 1254 to 1266. You've heard about Manfred's fate and the last question about the tragic fate of his children. Now then there's Violante, the third child of Bianca Lancia. She married Richard of Caserta, who became another of the main pillars of the regime in the last years of Frederick II, when he only trusted his immediate family. She died in childbirth and her only son was captured by Charles of Anjou and died in prison. Then there are two more we know literally nothing about. One was called Gerhard, who died in 1255, and another daughter, Blanche Fleur, who died in 1279. Blanche Fleur was a nun who died in the Abbey of Montargis in France. The two more grandchildren deserve a mention. One was Constance, the daughter of Manfred of Sicily, who got away. Constance had married Peter of Aragon, the same Peter of Aragon who took the island of Sicily of Charles of Anjou after the Sicilian Vespers. And then there's Margaret, the legitimate daughter Frederick II had with Isabel of England. She married Albrecht, Margrave of Meissen. Their marriage was pretty diabolical, as you can take from the nickname that her husband was given, Albrecht the Degenerate. Her son Frederick spent most of his life fighting his father and the King Adolf of Nassau for his inheritance, a process during which he gained the moniker Friedrich der Gebissene or Frederick the One Bitten in the Cheek. This lot are the ancestors of the Kings of Saxony. So that really is all I know and I have to admit I was comprehensively, comprehensively wrong when I said that Enzo was the last of the House of Hohenstaufen. So good news are, Hohenstaufens are still around, bad news that will no longer appear in our narrative. And that brings our Q&A session to an end. I hope you will stick around with the history of the Germans when we go into our next season. There'll be an announcement probably next week explaining how this is all going to work. And then the real season will kick off, I think, around March 2nd. I hope you're going to come along. <laughs>